Welcome to My Story Radio. This is Tom McComb, and I want to wish you a Happy New Year. This is the second day of 2007. How exciting that is, and look forward to wonderful things that God is going to do for us. Um, even just in recording today, we are matching our total number of shows that we had for 2006, which is pretty sad, I think. <laughs> and hopefully we'll be able to... Uh, to turn out more shows in 2007. I'd like to get on a more regular schedule. I hesitate to commit to that because as soon as I make a commitment to it, then it falls through. And so uh, we're going to record shows as we can in 2007 and see how that pulls through. Um, but we've been getting some good feedback from uh, the show with Jeff Urban just a few weeks ago. And today I have in the studio a friend of mine. Her name is Cindy Eggers. She is a Salvation Army soldier and actually on our ministry staff here. She is in charge of youth programming. And um, I wanted to bring her in to tell her story. So why don't you say hello to everybody, Cindy? Well, hello. If somebody were to just run into you and they don't know anything about you, what would you want somebody to know about you, Cindy Eggers? Well, I think that first and foremost, what I would want people to know about me is that I'm a salvationist, that um, I am heavily involved in my uh, service to my community and to, my, to the world around me. I'm very much committed to that. Pretty exciting. Pretty exciting stuff. Now, you have a very interesting... There's an interesting story that just surrounds your your salvation, how you were introduced to Jesus. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, obviously, we have a lot of other story to yeah. tell. We could go on for hours, I'm sure. But uh, but tell us about that. How how did you find how did you find salvation? I found salvation through my children. My children actually um, brought me to Jesus, and I know that. Um, and as a matter of fact, this past weekend. I had said that that if your children will save you if you let them. And my two daughters were invited to come to church at the Salvation Army. And me being the kind of mom that I am, I was not about to let them go somewhere that I didn't know where they were going or who they were going to be exposed to. So I had to go too. And I came here. And I've been here ever since. Um, I, when we first moved to um, Rochester, Minnesota, we didn't have very much, and we weren't working. My husband and I weren't working, so um, we needed some help, and it was Christmas time, and that is probably the busiest time at the Salvation Army. So we uh, applied for Christmas help, and um, being who I am, I just couldn't just take. I had to give, too, <laughs> and I've sure. been giving ever since, and this is, like, the only place I know, the only church I know with this kind of level of service that's involved in their in their ministry, and um, that was an important part for me, and as a result of all of that, I was saved, mm-hmm. so I I kind of credit my two daughters for for helping me see the light, so to speak. That's excellent, and and uh, we just we just saw your daughter and son-in-law just come through the studio just a minute ago. Studio, I call it. This is really the cork of that room, <laughs> but uh, they came through, and they are they are now newly commissioned officers in Detroit and doing very well there. We hear a lot of reports from you that they're doing yes, well, and. They are. and uh, I, I think they're really excited about being in urban ministry and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe if we got time later in the week, I should interview them and get them and hear oh. what's going on there. Okay. That would be very exciting. 
we'll see what their availability is. I'm not going to have you commit for what they're <laughs> what they're up to. One of the reasons why I have you in the studio, Cindy, and talking uh, and letting our My Story Radio listeners hear your story is because um, when we came here a year and a half ago, we understood that it was not too long ago from that point that your husband died from um, uh, from a brain tumor, I understand. That's correct. And uh, one of the things that I've been really wrestling with um, is kind of an idea of suffering because obviously as Christians we are not promised that it's going to be easy going. Uh, we're not promised that we're going to be free from suffering and um, just even in my position as a core officer, I get to talk with a lot of people who are in the midst of suffering. And sometimes I hear people talking and saying things that, that I think they think I want to hear, like, oh, God is faithful, and God is going to bring us through. But even in the midst of that, I see, I see pain in their eyes, and I see that they want to ask the question, why? Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes they want to raise fists toward heaven and just shake it and say, God, why are you doing this to me? And I, I just am going to indulge my listeners a little bit and, and just reading from First Kings chapter 17. And this is the sermon I'm getting ready to preach on this Sunday, so you're going to help me out with this okay. just by hearing what your perspective on, uh, is on this. And this is um, the story of Elijah raising the widow's son, and it's just, what is it, seven verses. And so... We'll read this quickly. It's First Kings 17, starting at verse 17. It says, Now it came about after all these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his, sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death? And so often... When somebody's in the midst of suffering, people want to reduce it to a sin issue, even today. And it's, I think it's sad when that, that happens. Obviously, sometimes suffering comes as a result of sin, but we can't, you know, we can't immediately assume that. And sometimes it just happens. Verse 19, uh, he said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, Have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. How long ago has it been that your husband died? He died on June seventh, two 2004. So it's been about two and a half years um, since he's been gone. And... Um, Referring back to the beginning of your passage, um, there was a time when I wondered what I had done that that brought all this on. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I wondered what Frank had done 
that brought that on to him. Um, when I came to the realization through other people that um, that led me biblically to believe that we didn't necessarily do anything, that it wasn't a sin-related issue. Um, but yeah, there. Were, I mean, that's an, I think a very natural reaction to suffering um, is what did I do to deserve this? And I spent a long time being angry at God for putting me through this. Um, one of the things that um, that I've come to terms with is death isn't necessarily about dying, but it's about living. It's about how you lived your life and how you live after the person that you're close to is gone. Um, there's a certain amount of bravery involved in dying too for the person who's dying, but there's an incredible amount of bravery is required of the person that's left behind yeah. also. Yeah, because even up until the death, you at least have each other, right? and then all of a sudden you're left, you're left alone. Now, some... Some people's experience with death is it's very sudden. Um, even even as uh, somebody who's young, uh, sometimes it's an old person that, although there's sadness, it's not totally unexpected that you know that this has happened. But this came. It wasn't sudden for you, but it wasn't something that you were expecting either. Exactly. Because Frank, although he wasn't really young, was. It, you know, he mm-hmm. had a lot of life in front of him. Exactly. And how long, how long, explain a little bit of the process when you first found out there were problems, and then how did that progress then? Well, um, before we knew that he was even sick, he would experience things like um, he would be eating dinner and then have to throw up, and would get sick and then come back and finish dinner like he, there was nothing wrong. Mm. Um, there were times when um, he couldn't hear me when I was talking. I, he couldn't hear me in one ear. And I thought that was just a selective hearing thing that some husbands seem to have. And I came to <laughs> find out. to me, but no. <laughs> But I came to find out that that wasn't the case, that he actually had lost his hearing in one ear due to that tumor. But we still had not figured out what that was. Um, then eventually what happened was he got, he got what we called the flu. Okay, and this was um, probably about two weeks before a toy shop, a Christmas here, okay? And um, it would have been 2003, and then he never got over that flu. He ended up going to the doctors about two weeks later because he was still sick, Mm. and they put him in the hospital because he was so dehydrated that um, he couldn't function. His kidneys weren't functioning normal or anything anymore. Um, but they still didn't know that he had had this brain tumor. They thought everything was wrong with his stomach. So they did all kinds of tests to determine what was wrong with his stomach, and they could not really come up with anything. So they made him better by rehydrating him and sent him home. And that happened two or three times in like a two-month period. Mm. Um, where he would go back to work and he would be just fine and then he would start to get sick again. Um, finally, um, it had happened and we had had him in um, St. Mary's here and um, they rehydrated him. I took him back home and um, 
we had uh, waited about two or three days, and then he had what they call a taste test, where he had to, um, he went to Mayo, and they put different kind of tastes on his tongue, mm-hmm. because he had also been complaining the food tastes different to him. And um, he passed his his taste test. I mean, he could tell whatever they had. I think there was a couple of different things that he didn't taste, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, he did very well. Well, he was so out of it that day, too, that I told told him, I said, I just can't take you home because I don't think it's safe for me to take care of you. So I took him back up to his top floor at Mayo to see his the gastrointestinal doctor. And I told that man, I'm not taking him home. I said, something's desperately wrong, and I, I just can't take him home. So they put him back in the hospital. But this one doctor said, we're just going to do a head CT just, to, just because. And that night, they found a spot on his brain. Mm. And within like three hours of that, of finding that spot on his brain, here we had neurosurgeons in our room talking to us. There's a spot on your brain. We're going to take it out. Six weeks from now, you're going to be fine. You're going back to work. Everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. And that's what we thought. We thought, okay, no problem. So the next morning, he went into surgery, and we knew it was going to take a long time for them to, to remove this spot on his brain. Well, they kept calling me from the... Or from the operating room, you know, nurse kept calling me and giving me updates as how we, how things were going and how things were going. But she kept saying, you are going to be there to talk to the doctor when he's done, right? And I kept saying, well, yeah, you know, to me that was common sense. Finally, after a couple of times of her saying that, um, the next time that she called me to tell me he was in recovery, um, I asked her if it was okay if I brought my daughters, my two daughters, with me when I talked to the doctor. And she said, how old are they? And when I explained to her that they were older, you know, they were like 18 and 19 at the time, she said, yeah, that'll be okay. And I thought this uh, sounded like a little too strange to me. Yeah. So when we went to the... Um, to the conference room. They came and got us and took us to the conference room, and then they explained that they had found cancer Mm -hmm. and that they could only remove a portion of that tumor because so many nerves had been wrapped around it Mm -hmm. that to remove the whole thing would jeopardize his quality of life. Mm -hmm. And by that, they meant he he wouldn't be able to swallow or walk or talk. So, and those were such major things that they couldn't remove the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So they were going to do radiation and chemo, and that was going to shrink it. And it was all still going to be okay. Oh, boy. And so we always, we had this hope, you know. um, This hope was instilled in us for, for so long that it was such a devastating thing to our family, but we could recover from that. Mm-hmm. You know, and and we had been led to believe that we could recover from that all along. Yeah. Well, within 24 hours, they decided that that wasn't necessarily the case. Oh boy. And when the oncologist came to talk to us um, in intensive care, um, we asked them for numbers. We asked them right off the bat, what are the what are the, the statistics for someone to survive this? Mm-hmm. And he said that only about 2% of people live past a year. 
Oh boy. And that's when it hit us that yeah. this like was a not. Of yeah, this isn't going to happen like we had anticipated it happening. And Frank just kind of, after everybody left, Frank just kind of looked at me and and he goes, I've got cancer. And I said, yeah, you do. And he goes, what are we going to do? I said, what we're going to do is we're going to walk this road together mm. and we're going to pray to God and we're going to make sure that everything's right with God and that's how it's going to work out. And no matter what his will is for our lives, that's what we're going to accept. But we're going to do all of this together. Sure. And we cried together, and mm -hmm. then it was, what happens next? It was all, and it was all such a doctor thing, you know. Everything was um, wrapped around radiation and chemotherapy, and the next doctor visit, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. It was, um, it was so doctor led from there. Um, it left very little time for our faith. Yeah. Very little. Um, but it was such... It was all wrapped up in the mechanics of, of procedures yeah. and... Yeah, yeah. And, you doctor's know... Doctor's reports and tests and all that stuff. Right. And, you know, like, what was the next thing that to happen? You know, because at one point he had to have a feeding tube put in because um, he couldn't hold anything on his stomach. And the most important thing was keep it, keeping up his weight. Yeah. So we had to have a feeding tube put in. And, you know, so there were different things that happened along the way that made it like that, okay? That, yeah. uh, and it was all a downward spiral. The whole thing was just a downward spiral. And how long from when you got that 2% report till when he actually died? Six months. Six months. Six months. And I would say probably the last four weeks, um, he he had all of his faculties and all of his, his, his mind was just sharp as a tack until about a month before he died. And then it's, he started to go uh, mm. mentally also. Wow. So, yeah. So, but we did a lot of talking in those five months about, you know, how he wanted things or how things should be. Sure. Uh, took care of all of our financial issues. Um, he wanted to make sure that... You know, we were all going to be okay after he was gone. Yeah. Um, but one thing that really um, kind of it, it kind of surprised me too was um, after we had gotten the news, after he had had his brain surgery, he came home from uh, the hospital, and we called all of our family members together, everybody who lives here in Minnesota, and um, so it was 90% of almost all of it was my family and yeah. friend and our friends. And I expected Frank to tell them that he wasn't going to be around in six months, mm -hmm. all right? And he didn't, that's not what he said at all. He said, we're going to beat this. Yeah. And I sat next to him on the couch going, uh, how, do you, how can you even say that? Mm -hmm. You know, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. But he believed in his mind that he was going to beat it. Yeah. I don't think it was about dying for him. Wow. I don't think it was about dying at all for him. Well, I guess part of it, and, and, and I, I wrote this question down while you were telling that, is that the doctors kept saying, you know, everything's going to be okay, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to be able to go back to work and all that stuff. How important was that hope? I guess, I guess you probably wrestled with the idea of, well, why, did, why weren't the doctors more honest with us 
earlier. Why? You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Oh, yeah. I mean, you probably wrestled with that. Was it more important to know the truth, or was it more important to have that hope, even if the hope was empty? You know what I'm saying? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I think I would have rather have had the honesty. I think I would have rather have them been truthful mm-hmm. than to give me the false hope. Because it, it took me to a level where I had to recover from mm-hmm. in the end. Whereas if I would have never gone that high, I would have never had to have that kind of recovery. Well, and I guess, you know, in deference to the doctors, and I, ne- I never mm-hmm. met them, I don't know who, who was involved in this, but I can only hope that they really did have a firm hope in the information that they had at the time, mm-hmm. that they were not trying to give you an empty false hope, that they were really, they were rooting for you as much as, as Frank was, even in, during those phone calls where he right. said, we're going to beat this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I mean, I mean, hope is a commodity that a lot of us take for granted, but but it's a lot of times it's the only thing that gets you through. Well, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, and maybe maybe that's was there. You know, hopefully they're going to be the outcome. Okay, mm-hmm. and I can see where they felt that way, um, but I think they could have given me the idea that there's this much possibility that that won't happen too yeah that there that there are some things that look bad that they simply want to rule out or exactly yeah. exactly um, well and then pretty soon after we got here about 15 months after he died mm-hmm. then you started to get news that's right and tell us about that that's right um then I had gotten sick also. I had gotten the flu, and I was home sick, but I was having some other symptoms that were kind of weird, too. I was really dizzy, and um, a couple days before I gotten sick, I'd been, like, dropping things, uh, like answering the phone at work and dropping the receiver of the phone consistently. Um, I noticed that my eyesight wasn't quite what it was supposed to be. I couldn't read for more than a few minutes at a time without it getting uh, real blurry on me, um, but I kind of wanted to ignore most of that, okay, <laughs> being who I am, um, and so I did ignore, uh, you know, some pretty significant things, and then when I got the flu, um, I, I called my doctor down in Stewartville, and I said, this is what's going on, but I said, I got some other issues, too, that I'm not so sure of, and I explained that. Well, within like 10 minutes, the nurse called me back. I made an appointment to see the doctor that day. Within 10 minutes, the nurse called me back and said, Cindy, this isn't a flu. This is something neuro, and we need somebody to take you to the emergency room. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Like The only person here is my daughter who also has a flu, and this isn't going to work for me. So I drove myself to the emergency room. The first thing they did was a head CT, and they found a spot on my brain. And so for you, it's reopening that whole thing again. It was, it was so devastating that when he told me that they found this spot on my brain, I remember jumping up off of the, 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 the couch thing and saying, that's not possible. And I got so dizzy that he had to catch me. 
the doctor had to catch me, and he sat me back down, and I just, I want to say I was crying, but it was more than crying. It was, I was sobbing. I was like, this just isn't possible. It can't happen this way. It's, no, I I can't believe that. Kind of a panic. Yeah, it it did. You know, I was like, it just can't be real, okay? Mm -hmm. And the next thought that I had was, I can't tell my kids this. There's just no way I can tell my kids and this not after all that we've been through. Yeah. You know? And um they gave me the option of, of uh calling a friend or to take an ambulance, but they were transferring me from Olmstead Medical Center over to Saint Mary's emergency room because they were more equipped to handle this kind of a thing. Well, it didn't occur to me what this kind of a thing was. Mhm. Um, meaning that there was good possibility I also had cancer. Yeah. But it did that part didn't dawn on me yet. What dawned on me was brain surgery and what my husband had gone through and not yeah. recovered. Now I was going to be going through that same thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I called a friend and he came and picked me up. And the whole way over to St. Mary's, I'm going, this isn't real. This isn't happening. And he's going... I'm afraid it is real and it is happening and we're going to have to face this. And um, when I got to the emergency room at St. Mary's, of course, they did another head CT and determined that I had a spot on my brain and started talking to me about cancer. And I'm like, no, it's not happening. I I don't have it, you know. And then I explained to them that my husband had just passed away. Mm-hmm. of cancer and all of a sudden everybody grew very serious and I'm like no it's not happening you know and yeah. I I refused to believe that I had to, had cancer um, but that's the way they treated this entire thing mm-hmm. um, for three days they, they had scheduled a series of tests for me after they admitted me and um, so I went through all this stuff and, and finally they got around to the MRI, and I was like, I wanted the MRI first, okay, because I knew that would determine just how serious all this was. And um, unfortunately, scheduling-wise, it didn't work out that way, and the MRI was the last thing. And I remember um, after the MRI coming back to my room and the doctor coming in and going, I don't believe this, but you don't have cancer. And I'm like, I told you I didn't have cancer. And he's like, you have a a cavernoma, which was a bleeding in my brain. So, Mm. yeah, I had a spot on my brain, but it wasn't cancer. And, like, my my daughters were like, yay. And I was like, see, I told you I didn't have cancer. So I was really happy about that. And then they told me that there was a, a possibility that that may never happen again, that I could recover from that. Okay, the stro- it was a, like a stroke-like symptoms, and I could recover from that. It may never, ever happen again. Hmm. So here, there was no surgery. There was nothing. I mean, hmm. I had nothing but therapy, which was wonderful. I was like, okay, I can do this. I can yeah. do this. So I went through therapy, and I was doing okay, and things were doing really well, and I was going to be okay. And um, I started, my speech started getting messed up again. And I started dropping things again, and I'm like, oh, this can't be happening again. And sure enough, it 
they put me back in the hospital and said, yeah, it's happening again. Mm. So um, they decided they were going to they were going to take out these blood vessels that were malformed. So I went through brain surgery. And um, I'll tell you, that was a huge test of my faith right there. I was like, this can't possibly be the same hope that I had been given before. And here I am looking at it again. Um, Now, the surgeon who did Frank's surgery... um, through conferences um, amongst all the neurosurgeons at Mayo had come across my name mm-hmm. and found out that I was having brain surgery and said, I'm doing her brain surgery. Wow. So in midstream, I changed doctors. I wasn't so sure I wanted this guy to do my brain surgery because I was so afraid mm-hmm. that that was going to happen, that everything was going to happen again. Yeah. So it took a lot of praying for me to be able to have enough faith to let him do that. Mm-hmm. And um, when I'd gone in for um, right before they did the surgery, I'd actually had your wife come with me mm-hmm. um, to that doctor's appointment. And the last thing I said to the surgeon was, now if you get in there and you find something different than what you've been telling all these people, you can't tell all these people before you tell me. You have sure. to tell me first, mm-hmm. because when Frank, before Frank was even out of recovery, yeah. I knew he had cancer. I had to know that whole night before he knew the next morning when he woke up, and I didn't want all these other people to know before. It was torture, wasn't it? Oh, it was. It was devastating. It was devastating. So you wanted to hear first, mainly to protect your family that's right so that yeah so i could tell them i wanted to be the one Mm -hmm. to tell them if if they had to get that kind of news i didn't want them to hear it from the same doctor yeah i wanted them to hear it from me yeah and of course the good lord blessed me (laughs) and there was no complications at all during that surgery and uh, i remember waking up and I could actually hold a spoon. <laughs> I could actually eat jello sure. for the first time in like six months. It was amazing. I was I wanted to get up and dance but I didn't have the energy to do that. <laughs> you were just glad to watch the jello dance on your spoon. That's right. That's exactly right. And to be able to go through something like that after what I'd already been through was just I don't know how people without faith do that. I yeah. don't know how they do that because I had I had the love of Jesus mm-hmm. with me. I knew that I was never going to be left alone. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, no matter what the outcome was going to be, I don't know, understand how people with no faith can can live through those kind of things. Wow. I just don't understand. Mm-hmm. So. But here I am today, and it's um, a little over a year later, and I have very, very little symptoms uh, that that even happened to me. Um, Now, when I talked to you this morning, and I talked about doing this interview with you, and I told you that I wanted to talk about suffering, um, partly because of this passage is here, but partly because I think you, you just got such a powerful story to tell 
a story of God's power and of his faithfulness. You said something very interesting to me today. You said, I'm ready to talk about it. That's right. Now, since Frank died, there have been three Christmases. Mm-hmm. Everybody's birthday has gone a couple of times. Yep. Thanksgivings, every wedding anniversary, all that stuff. That's right. And each one of those, you know, I, I'm sure that even in the future there's going to be some pain associated with each one of those as you mm-hmm. think about what would it be like if he was still here. Um, you know, just even just, you know, even with your family here, there's still that emptiness. Of course. Of um, course. Why are you ready now? What is different now from two months ago or from last year? Why is it? Why are you ready now? Because I think now I'm in a different place than I was even a year ago. Um, a year ago, I still felt like I still felt abandoned by him. I was still um, struggling with God. I was still angry at God um, because he wasn't here. Um, and I still, I got to say, I still have those moments, mm-hmm. okay, where where I'm still a little angry with God about it. But today, it's more about my future than it is about my past. I spend more time now looking at today or looking at tomorrow instead of looking at yesterday. Mm. So that's that's what's changed. Um, after someone passes away, you have a tendency to live in the past. Yeah. Okay? And as your grief subsides some, okay, then you start looking at today. Then it subsides a little more, and you start looking at tomorrow. And that's where I'm at. I'm, at, I'm in the tomorrow phase, and mm-hmm. I'm really happy to be here. Um. I'm ha- I'm happier now than I was um, a year ago because I've accepted the fact that this is what God has planned for me. Hmm. Okay, um, and I went from knowing exactly what God's plan was before Frank got sick. I, we thought we had it all figured out. Okay, well we didn't. Okay. Yeah to not having a clue what God has planned for you, mm-hmm. okay, to now it doesn't matter what God has planned for me because it, it's all good. Yeah. So now it's okay because I can accept not knowing mm-hmm. what that plan is and to just be directed by God every day. And just trust Him for the next step. That's right. That's right. That's exactly it. You know, there's... it's. I was just thinking about this the other day, about the fact that there are some scripture passages that I'm not ready to preach about. One of them is when Abraham is ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. Mm -hmm. Another one of them, and and I'm sure that as you've taken a look through Paul's writings, there's some time when Paul says, be thankful in all circumstances, meaning that if everything else is bad around you, you get something to be thankful for. But there's a point where Paul says, be thankful for all things. Mm-hmm. Are you ready to do that yet? No. <laughs> i got to say, no, I'm not. I, that's something I can't preach about because I, well, first of all, 
I can't understand your suffering. Mm-hmm. I can hear you talk about it, but there, there's no way that I can put myself in your shoes. Right. Um, part of it is that I don't understand how somebody can get to that point where you can be thankful for a painful situation. I think I can, I think I can picture a little bit, and I can, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I guess there is there is a day perhaps in your future where where you'll not only look forward to tomorrow, but you will look forward to a week from tomorrow, mm-hmm. or even farther in the future, right. and, and further expecting God's healing and all that stuff. Um, but that's a difficult concept for me to get my arm around, right. and I'm sure that it is for you too. But. That's right, and you know, um, that's probably one of the biggest issues with suffering and with grief as a whole. You know, is how can I be thankful for this? Yeah. Okay, what what good is going to come from this? Well, there is good that comes from that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. Now I have, I have a knowledge now that not even you have, mm-hmm. that not a lot of people walk around with today. What, what God gave this to me is a gift. So what am I supposed to do with all this knowledge now? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And um, I find what I am supposed to do with it is to share that with other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I, I'm, I'm doing that. Not only have I talked to other people in, in grief groups before, um, but I'm also in the process of writing a uh, grief program for young adults. Wow. Um, one of the things that's missing in our community, and there are many things that our community duplicates program-wise, but this is one thing that's absolutely missing is there is no... Um, grief encounter for young people. I'm not talking about little kids. Yeah. I'm not talking about adults. Okay, I'm talking about the teenagers through the young adult age. Like 13 to 25. Right, right. There's nothing for them. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that out um, in trying to help my own daughter um, through her grief. And I don't have a clue what it's like to lose a parent. Both of my parents are still alive. I don't know what it's like to lose your father or to lose your mother. Um, So in writing all of this, I'm learning that too. Um, But I I should be done within the next few weeks with this this program, and then I'm going to present it to... uh, to a grief group here, um, it's actually an international grief group called Beginning Experience, and I want to present it to them and their board and see if it's something that they want to use, and then perhaps take it to a couple of the big hospices here in town, um, because I think it's a very vital part mm-hmm. of um, of healing. Sure. So. So. That that's that's pretty exciting. I didn't know that you were writing that. Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty cool. What do you say? What would you say to somebody who's in the midst of this anger phase? Is it okay to get angry with God? Yes, it is. You know why? Why? I, I didn't know this either until um, I'd asked that question too. Okay, but God is bigger than anybody. If anybody can take it, God can take it. 
So it's okay to be angry with God because there's going to come a time when your anger subsides and God's still going to love you like he loved you before Mm -hmm. you got angry. Sure. So, yeah, you can be angry at God and you can tell him all those things that you're mad about. He's probably the safest person to be angry at through this whole process. I guess the other question, and I guess I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. Does he want to hear that? Yes, he does. He wants he wants you to get all those emotions out and to come to that point. And I don't think you ever will come to that point until you get those things out. Um, the anger and the, um, uh, the disassociation with other people that you have, those kind of things that happen when, you, when you're going through a grief time. Um, I think that all those steps are important to get to acceptance, and the only way you're going to get to it is for for you to experience all those other things. Mm-hmm. So yes, God does want to hear it. I think so. Yeah, it's kind of interesting though. I mean, you think about that passage that I just read, where you know, first the the widow was upset with Elijah. Why did you bring this back to me? You know, mm-hmm. and then Elijah says, Why, you know, why have you brought this? calamity to the widow by causing her son to die. So both of them are expressing this anger, one to another person, one to God. And then God just hears the prayer and he answers. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I, I think I think in, in that I see that God understands. Yeah, he and does. He wants us to cry out to him, not only with the good stuff, but the bad stuff too. Mm-hmm. What... A lot of the people who are listening to this are younger. Some of them in that age range, 13 to 25, mainly because they're more hip to this technology than Mm -hmm. people your age and my age are. But some of them have experienced loss, maybe a family member, a grandparent or a parent or a sister Mm -hmm. brother who died. Some of them know somebody who's lost somebody mm-hmm. dear to them. What advice would you give to that young person? What's the best thing they can do for their friend? Listen, the best thing to do is to have someone who can listen. You don't have to say anything. You just have to be there. That's it. And to take the initiative to be there. Um a lot of people said to me, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. But the people who really wanted to do something didn't have to ask me that. They just did it. Mm. They were just there or they just came and cleaned my house or they, you know, they Mm -hmm. just did it. They didn't say, let me know so that it was up to me to take the initiative. It was those people. So be that person that can that'll be there to listen and mm-hmm. to hold them and to love them and to be non-judgmental um, because a lot of things are setting in grief and in anger that really aren't meant, you know, and they may be meant at, the, at that moment. That's not the, the um, real emotion. That's just raw stuff coming out mm-hmm. is what it is. So that's a big part of that, too. Sure. So... Um, so it's not it's not just 
it's not even something that you can say. It's just, you just need to be there. Just be there. Yep, that's right. Just be there. Um, A lot of people, too, have the idea that um, people that are going through those kind of things want to be alone. And that's not really the case either. Mm -hmm. Um, The more people that they can have around them, the better they're going to be. Mm-hmm. That's why people, um, when they're going through a time like that, become workaholics or so on. You know, they, sure. they're like, they get so involved in school, you know, mm-hmm. um, that the busy life, so to speak, because they have to be around people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I've had days, too, when people have said to me, oh, you should go home. You look terrible. You know, and I'm having a bad day. I'm crying and I'm upset. But if I go home it's going to be even worse. And you're going to be upset and alone. And alone. <laughs> and I would rather be around people. Sure. So um, that's a, a very popular misconception is those people need to be left alone. No, they don't. They need to know they that need, people They care. need people around them more than ever and friends. And that's stuff. right. That's right. How has this experience, both with Frank and yourself, how has it changed how you minister to other people? Oh, it's changed immensely I before Frank got sick I thought that my my faith was unshakable okay Mm -hmm. I really did I was was very strong in my faith and um, very adamant about how who God was in my life and how you know I could use that to influence other people and what I found out through all this experience is that was not even the case. Mm. So my faith has grown immensely in the past two years. Um, and what I say to other people now is is so different because I am just a different person mm-hmm. altogether. Um, the way I see things is, is totally different than how I saw them two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like who I am now, mm-hmm. and I didn't think that um, this this experience would change me into a better person. Back then, I couldn't see that, yeah. but now I can. You know, when I look at, in the past, and I've come a million miles in two years, mm-hmm. and um, I, I can't even believe that it's only been that amount of time. Um, but it has changed everything in my life, everything. Mm-hmm. So um, I believe more now in my salvation than I've ever believed in my lifetime. And one of the things that happened um, when Frank and I first started talking after we found out that he wasn't going to survive all of this was um, he he was laying on the bed one day and I walked in there and he had been crying and and I asked him if he was okay and he said, I'm scared. And I, I said, yeah, I can understand that. And, um, he, and I had to leave the room because I was a little freaked out too. And, um, he, when I went back in, he asked me, he goes, do you think I'm going to heaven? And I picked up my Bible and I showed it to him, and I said, do you believe this? And he goes, what? I said, do you believe everything that's written in this book? And he had to think about it for a second, and he said, yeah, I do. I said, then you're going to heaven. Mm-hmm. I said, there's no doubt about that. You're going to heaven. 
And after that, he just kind of had a piece about it, the whole thing, you know. Um, he talked about it more calmly than he had talked about it before. Um, but I thought to myself, here I was preaching salvation to him, and I didn't even believe it my own self, barely, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it was a lesson to me, too, as sure. well as to him. But I believe now more than ever in my salvation and in eternal life mm-hmm. um, than I've ever believed before. Mm-hmm. So it's changed everything, every aspect of my life. Here's a question. I don't uh, just just talking about that and listening to how your life has changed. I'm just this is a two-part question. What things are more difficult now than they were five years ago, and what things are easier than they were five years ago? For some reason, it's easier to answer what's more difficult, and I don't know why. Okay. Um, What's more difficult is going home to an empty house, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, when my children need me the most, I find it really, really hard to um, do that by myself mm-hmm. because I've mm-hmm. never had to do that by myself before. Sure. Um, those are probably the biggest issues mm-hmm. that I have. Um, and granted, my girls are both grown and one's married now, okay, but they still need a mama, mm-hmm. you know, and a daddy too, for sure, that matter. Sure. Um, but those are the times when it's the most difficult um, and when I'm sick because I want him to be there to take care of me, and he's not, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay. Um, but what's easier now it's easier to talk to people about my faith now than it ever was before. Mm-hmm. I find um, evangelism so much more easier than it was um, before. Um, let me think. What else could be easier? You know, I'm I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. I know that evangelism is a big part of that. Um, I... My... Um, comprehension of what the Bible really says has taken a big turn too mm-hmm. um, and I've I've known all along what it said but now yeah. it has a different meaning sure. than it did then mm-hmm. um, so my Bible study has taken a big upswing in the past couple of years it's pretty exciting yeah it is what else do you want to say you got the whole world on the other yeah, side of this computer connection here listening. What do you want to say? I probably would want everyone to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And that light is Jesus. And even though it's really, really hard to see sometimes, it is there. And grief isn't just about people who are dying okay grief is about any loss that you may be suffering from uh, moving away from your friends mm-hmm. to I mean um, the, the loss of your innocence mm-hmm. to anything I mean grief grief comes from in many many forms not just through death and divorce okay grief comes 
um, in, in ways that we aren't expecting it. And it also comes a lot earlier than we think, too. Um, I had started grieving the loss of Frank before he was gone. Sure. Um, and because you were anticipating Frank, it, yeah. The loss of his health was huge mm-hmm. for us, you know. Um, Frank was a big sports fan, played softball and golf, and um, we did a lot of traveling together. Many things like that happened, and um, so we grieved the loss of, of that kind of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so grief comes long before people think, yeah. you know. Um, so, but there's a lot of help out there too, you know. It's not something that you have to go through alone. So for that young person who is feeling that loss, whether it's a loved one or, like you said, innocence or, you know, moving away from friends, what 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 do they need to do? They need to probably seek out someone who has had that experience before. Somebody who's walked down that road. Exactly, exactly. One of the biggest um, helps that I have had was I'm not the first widow in this church, mm-hmm. okay? And I've had um, that model mm-hmm. to go to go behind, and that was that was big. Mm-hmm. It was big for me, um, and uh, I'm hoping that I can be that for someone too, mm-hmm. eventually. You know. Um, my sister, who has had cancer now for a couple of years, is um, not doing very well, um, has more problems come up in the past few months mm-hmm. than um, she's ever had to experience. And she has a very young family. Her her youngest son is a senior in high school mm. um, and a daughter who's quadriplegic that mm-hmm. she's been taking care of for years. Um, and her family has, they have a faith that is incredible too. Mm-hmm. And I thank God for that. I thank yeah. God that they have that because that is the big thing that's going to help them through all this. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that my sister will survive her cancer. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that, that it'll get the best of her eventually. Yeah. Um, so. I don't know exactly what to say to them because this isn't where the work is. You know, and mm-hmm. a lot of people think that this is where the work is. It isn't. This, the work comes afterwards. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, when it comes right down to it, take a breath and relax and take what's yours and don't take on what isn't yours. Yeah. You know, so. And, and cherish those moments that happened before. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you want to say hello to out there? Who do you want to send shouts out to? Uh, Probably my kids Mm -hmm. with Kelsey and Megan, my son-in-law, Javier, my son, David. Um, We just went on vacation and just, I just had a wonderful time with them and I feel rested and Mm -hmm. and, um, ready to start the new year. So, yep. So what does 2007 have in store for you? Oh, you know, you're not the first person to ask me that, okay? And uh, 
my goal for 2007, actually, last Sunday my daughter preached, Mm -hmm. okay, at church, and I haven't had much opportunity to hear her preach. Um, And I'm not one to set resolutions for myself. I usually don't. Um, But I did this year. And my goal this year is to become more spiritually minded. Hmm. That's my goal. My goal is to make Jesus number one, no matter what, in my life. That's a good goal for all of us, I that's, think. Yeah. That's what it's going to be. Sure. That's my goal. for if, if, if I can do that, everything else will just fall into place. It'll be, it'll be God's will, mm-hmm. no doubt. And to be able to live... In God's will like that, whew, that's big. Sure. That's really big. So. Well, thank you very much for, for joining me today. You're welcome. And, uh, good. I, I appreciate you telling your story. I know it's not easy. It's easier now than it would have been a year ago. And that's right. I suppose it'll be easier again, even more, and more lessons learned in the next year. That's right. Uh, so. That's right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Cindy. Well, thank you for uh, for listening, listening in on us at My Story Radio. And uh, if you want more information, go to mystoryradio.com. There you'll find links. There's a little blog that I almost never update. I've got to get better on that one. That's one of my year's <laughs> resolutions, Cindy, is to get better on, up on that. In fact, uh, one of the things that I'd really like to start doing, um, you know, and obviously this, this podcast today is... Uh, springing out of my study for this for the sermon this next week, but I'd like to kind of talk about um, my upcoming sermons and even blog about them a little bit because I think that there are some insights that others might have and might be able to help me out as I develop uh, a message uh, to give to God's people. So um, anyway, contact us, uh, see us at mystoryradio.com. You can email us uh, with suggestions or comments and anything that you'd like to say um, at letters at mystoryradio.com. But with that, we're going to say goodbye and hope you have a wonderful 2007. Again, this is Tom McComb from mystoryradio.com.